0: Welcome to Bourbon and History. This is Episode 1.41, Topics in History Number 3, Judicial Review. With the recent controversy swirling around the Supreme Court over the last few weeks, I thought it would be a good idea to take a look at how and why the Supreme Court has the power to decide the validity of laws in the United States through a process known as Judicial Review. Today, we look at the Supreme Court as a powerful third branch of government, the branch that determines which laws are constitutional and which laws are not. We take for granted they are the supreme decider of laws, but this wasn't always the case. The high court was not always a coveted position individuals aspired to like it is today, nor was it always a giant issue when a president nominated a justice to the bench. Even the position of Chief Justice was considered a dead-end position within the federal government, and no one wanted the job. George Washington essentially had to plead with John Jay to finally take up the position in the early 1790s, but Jay would eventually resign, finding the job dull and lacking any kind of gravitas. But over the centuries, the court has taken on a significant role in the lives of American citizens— From determining the validity of contracts, to determining what constituted a citizen, to mandating the reading of rights to a suspect, later called a Miranda warning, and even to determining a presidential election outcome. But how did we get here? How did we arrive to a time when the Supreme Court, the branch of government, the framers of the Constitution, gave little to no effort into forming at the Constitutional Convention, become as powerful and influential as it has. Well, we first have to go all the way back to the Constitutional Convention and the court's formation, the rise of one of the most influential chief justices in American history, and one landmark decision in the early 1800s that placed the Supreme Court on par with the other two branches of the federal government. Imagine it's September 1787. You're a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and the body is finally wrapping up its deliberations. Amazingly, despite continuous debating and and back-and-forth dealing with over 50 other men over what kind of national government should be formed for the United States, the new national charter is finally finished. It establishes two strong branches of government, the legislative branch, defined in Article 1, and the executive branch, defined in Article 2. You've spent weeks arguing and debating over what kind of powers each branch should have, which branch gets to raise taxes, which branch controls the military, and which branch declares war and ratifies treaties. But you've finally come to a mostly unanimous consensus on these issues. Legislative powers will be vested within a Congress, which will be comprised of two chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Executive power will be vested within a president of the United States, elected to four-year terms by the people through a system called the Electoral College. Presidents can veto congressional legislation, and Congress can impeach the president for high crimes and misdemeanors, and even remove them from office if necessary. You feel like you've created a pretty good system with this new constitution. Neither the executive nor the legislature can will have carte blanche powers over the other, and each will keep the other in line through these systems of checks and balances. But as the Committee on Style is writing the finalized draft of this new constitution, your thoughts are centered on the third branch of government, the one most of the delegates considered the most irrelevant of the three, the judicial branch. So much time had been spent crafting the first two branches no one had really bothered to spend much time determining what exactly the soon-to-be-created Supreme Court of the United States was supposed to do. Until that point, state courts had largely adjudicated issues throughout the country. Forming a national court for the new federal government was more of an afterthought. In the English tradition, judges had been seen as agents of the king and his court who represented crown law throughout the realm. Many Americans, including James Madison, thus looked at judges as sources of corruption who would be bribed by state executives through patronage. To combat this idea, Madison and the other delegates decided that a third branch of the federal government should be created comprising a federal judiciary, completely separate from the other two branches of government and thus not under either's influence or control. In June, the delegates unanimously agreed to forming a national judiciary made up of a Supreme Court and one or more inferior courts. No one was sure what powers this Supreme Court would be granted, nor how many judges would serve on it. Delegates from the larger states, still pushing for the Virginia plan, wanted Congress to appoint the judges, while others, including James Wilson, wanted judges to be appointed by the president. Eventually, a compromise was reached in July, which allowed for the president to nominate judges and the Senate to confirm them. Congress would also be given the power to create and appoint inferior courts and all judges would hold office during good behavior and could be impeached by Congress the same as the president The final version of Article 3 outlined in general terms what the new judiciary branch of the government would do The judiciary would be vested in a Supreme Court of the United States with judges appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate to serve for life terms during good behavior The High Court was empowered to handle cases or controversies arising under federal law, as well as other enumerated areas. Congress was given the power to establish lower federal courts, which it would do through the Judiciary Act of 1789. There were no limits placed on how large the court could be, only that a chief justice would preside over it. There was also no mention of whether the court would be allowed to overturn laws passed by Congress. Some viewed this as an implied power. But others, especially those with a more strict constructionist view of the Constitution, felt that because the document did not explicitly grant the court that power, it did not have it. The first Chief Justice of the United States was John Jay, who, as I mentioned before, didn't really want the job. But Washington implored him to take it, and he did. The court met for the first time in the old Royal Exchange Building in New York City in February of 1790. They had no cases to hear, and a few of the new justices had not yet arrived to the Capitol, and so Jay quickly adjourned the court. The earliest sessions of the court were devoted to organizational proceedings. Aside from Jay, there were only four other justices, James Wilson, John Blair Jr., William Cushing, and James Iradell. The first cases didn't reach the court until its second year of existence, and the justices handed down their first opinion on August 3rd, 1791, in the case of West v. Barnes. During its first decade of existence, the Supreme Court rendered some significant decisions and established lasting precedents. However, the first justices complained of the court's limited stature. They were also concerned about the burdens of, quote, riding circuit under primitive travel conditions, which required them to sit in lower federal courts throughout the year when the high court wasn't in session. Jay himself had little interest in being chief justice. He traveled to Great Britain in 1794 to negotiate a new commercial treaty with the British and then resigned from the court in 1795 to become governor of New York. President John Adams pleaded for him to return to the position in 1800, but Jay refused. Thus, by the start of the 1800s, the court was leaderless and slipping into obscurity. No one wanted to serve on it, let alone lead it. And for Adams and the Federalists, who were facing certain defeat at the ballot box in the fall of 1800, having Federalist-appointed judges in the courts was becoming a necessity to ensure their policies remained in place should Thomas Jefferson win the presidency. And when Adams was officially defeated in the election, he began appointing Federal judges and officials as quickly as he could to get them confirmed by the outgoing Federalist-controlled Senate before Jefferson took office in March— It's largely because of these midnight judges by Adams we see the rise of the most consequential man to ever hold the position of Chief Justice, John Marshall. Ironically, Marshall was a cousin to Thomas Jefferson, but the two men disliked each other, mostly because Marshall was a Federalist and Jefferson was a Republican. Marshall had served in the House of Representatives from Virginia and as Adams' Secretary of State during the final year of his presidency, Adams felt Marshall would be the perfect man to ensure his Federalist policies remained intact for years to come. Marshall was appointed shortly before Jefferson's inauguration and confirmed by the Senate, making him the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Marshall immediately reorganized the institution, first by ending the practice known as Soriatim, an old British tradition that allowed for each judge to hand down an opinion of their own for each court ruling. Marshall instituted the practice of one ruling being handed down along with a majority and minority opinion, a practice still used by the court to this day. Second, he cultivated a stronger sense of brothership amongst the court justices by forcing justices to dine together and room together while riding the circuit. He encouraged justices to converse about cases with one another and give unofficial opinions on different aspects of the law. In one famous instance, Marshall got around the court's rule on not drinking alcohol except on rainy days or in times of illness by looking out the window one sunny day and stating, Our jurisdiction is far and wide, so it must be raining in some part of it right now. But Marshall's most impactful action would come through a case working its way towards the court by 1802. The case stemmed from the so-called Midnight Judges appointed by John Adams during the twilight of his presidency— Marshall, who had been finishing his tenure as Adams' Secretary of State during the appointments, was charged with delivering the late commissions to the appropriate individuals. As Secretary of State, Marshall had signed a number of the judges' commissions, but had failed to deliver a number of them by the time Adams left office. The incoming president, Thomas Jefferson, then instructed his new Secretary of State, James Madison, not to deliver some of the commissions which included one particular commission to a man named William Marbury, whom Adams had chosen as justice of the peace for the District of Columbia. Jefferson argued that because the commissions hadn't been delivered by noon on March 4th, 1801, the day and hour he was sworn in as president, they were now null and void. With Madison refusing to deliver his commission, Marbury asked the Supreme Court in December 1801 to issue a writ of mandamus, essentially a court order forcing Madison to deliver the commission. Marshall structured the case around three main questions he felt the court had to answer. First, did Marbury have a right to his commission? Second, if Marbury had a right to his commission, was there a legal remedy for him to obtain it? And finally, if there was such a remedy, could the Supreme Court legally issue it? In the court's unanimous ruling in Marbury v. Madison, the Chief Justice declared that Marbury did have a legal right to the office and that Madison had violated that right. He also affirmed that the law did provide Marbury a legal remedy for Madison's unlawful withholding of his commission, writing, It is a general and indisputable rule that where there is a legal right There is also a legal remedy by suit or action at law whenever that right is invaded. The court then affirmed that a writ of mandamus was the proper remedy for Marbury's situation. However, this raised the question of whether the Supreme Court, which was part of the judiciary branch of government, had the power to command Madison, who as Secretary of State was part of the executive branch. The court, through Marshall, held that so long as the remedy involved a mandatory duty to a specific person and not a political matter left to discretion, the courts could provide a legal remedy. Finally, Marshall arrived at the final question. Did the Supreme Court have proper jurisdiction over the case that would allow it to issue the writ of mandamus? The answer would depend entirely on how the court interpreted the text of the Judiciary Act of 1789. And fair warning, I'm going to be wading into a lot of legalese in this next section, so it may get a little confusing. Congress had passed the Judiciary Act to establish the American federal court system since the U.S. Constitution only mandates a Supreme Court and leaves the rest of the U.S. federal judicial power to reside in, quote, Such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. In Section 13 of the law, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court was laid out, asserting that the court would have exclusive jurisdiction over all cases of a civil nature where a state is a party, and shall have exclusively all such jurisdiction of suits or proceedings against ambassadors or other public ministers. Marbury had argued that the language of Section 13 of the Judiciary Act gave the Supreme Court the authority to issue writs of mandamus when hearing cases under original jurisdiction, not just appellate jurisdiction. But as Marshall would explain in the opinion, original jurisdiction gives a court the power to be the first to hear and decide a case. Appellate jurisdiction gives a court the power to hear an appeal from a lower court's decision and to, quote, revise and correct the previous decision. Although the language on the power to issue writs of mandamus appears after Section 13's sentence on appellate jurisdiction rather than with the earlier sentences on original jurisdiction, a semicolon separates it from the clause on appellate jurisdiction. The section does not make clear whether the mandamus clause was intended to be read as part of the appellate clause or on its own. In the opinion, Marshall quoted only the end of the section, and the law's wording can plausibly be read either way. In the end, the court agreed with Marbury and interpreted Section 13 of the Judiciary Act to have authorized the court to exercise original jurisdiction over cases involving disputes over writs of mandamus. But as Marshall pointed out, this meant that the Judiciary Act contradicted Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution— Which establishes the judicial branch of the US government. Article 3 says that the Supreme Court only has original jurisdiction over cases where a US state is a party to a lawsuit or where a lawsuit involves foreign dignitaries. Neither of these categories covered Marbury's lawsuit, which was a dispute over a writ of mandamus for his Justice of the Peace Commission. So, according to the Constitution, the court did not have original jurisdiction over a case like Marbury's. But the court had interpreted the Judiciary Act to have given it original jurisdiction over lawsuits for writs of mandamus. This meant that the Judiciary Act had taken the Constitution's initial scope for the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, which did not cover cases involving writs of mandamus, and expanded it to include them. The court ruled that Congress cannot increase the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction as it was set down in the Constitution, and it therefore held that the relevant portion of Section 13 of the Judiciary Act violated Article 3 of the Constitution. It's a little confusing to be sure, but the gist of Marshall's argument was that the Judiciary Act, which gave Marbury the power to appeal to the Supreme Court and request a writ of mandamus, was in itself unconstitutional meaning Marbury did not have standing to sue in the Supreme Court. For the first time in the nation's history, the Supreme Court had struck down a law passed by Congress as unconstitutional. The court ruled that American federal courts have the power to refuse to give any effect to congressional legislation that is inconsistent with their interpretation of the Constitution, a move known as striking down laws. Of course, this idea was on shaky constitutional grounds itself. The Constitution does not explicitly give the American judiciary the power of judicial review. Nevertheless, Marshall's opinion gives a number of reasons in support of the judiciary's possession of the power, including one statement that reasoned that the written nature of the Constitution inherently established judicial review. Marshall would go on to state it was his determination that, quote, It is emphatically the province and duty of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. The landmark decision by the court in 1803 immeasurably strengthened the power of the court and placed it as an equal branch of government alongside the legislative and executive branches. It also established the precedent of the Supreme Court, not the president and not Congress, as having the power to interpret laws, and strike down any legislation it felt conflicted with the Constitution. The court would rule on many more cases dealing with the powers of government and the rights granted under the Constitution for decades and centuries to come, though it would not directly strike down a law again until the Dred Scott decision in 1857, where it ruled the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional. Marshall himself would serve as Chief Justice until his death in 1835, ending his 34-year tenure as Chief Justice, the longest-serving Chief Justice in the nation's history. The Liberty Bell was rung following his death, and there is a long-held rumor that claims that is when the bell cracked, never to be rung again. During Marshall's tenure, the Supreme Court would issue more than 1,000 decisions, more than half of those written by Marshall himself nearly all were unanimous, a testament to Marshall's strong leadership and ability to build consensus despite the fact that every justice during his tenure was appointed by a president who opposed Marshall's views. Marshall had laid the foundations for the Supreme Court's role as the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution, which paved the way for the expansion of the federal government in the 19th and 20th centuries. In particular, the court's landmark ruling in McCulloch v. Maryland in 1819 which Marshall also wrote, established the idea that the Constitution gave Congress implied powers beyond those specifically enumerated in the document, including the power to create a national bank that could not be taxed by individual states. In Cohen's v. Virginia, 1921, the court affirmed its own right to review the judgments of state courts, helping to establish the supremacy of federal over state courts. And so today... The court remains the final arbiter of the constitutionality of laws passed by Congress. It has wielded this power in both positive and negative ways. It has both championed civil rights and restricted them. It has both upheld the principles of equal justice under law, while also separating entire racial and ethnic groups within society under the auspices of separate but equal. If history has taught us one thing about the Supreme Court, however, it is this. Like anything else, the court ebbs and flows with the passage of time. Justices are people, and people come and go, replacing one set of beliefs and legal interpretations with another. Conservative-minded courts eventually give way to liberal-minded courts, and the balance continually shifts, giving each era of the court its own distinct standards of norms and values. The Supreme Court today is both revered and despised, But one thing remains constant, and that is the willingness of Americans to allow the yielding of ultimate authority over the interpretation of the Constitution to an unelected body that serves for life. Though strange as it seems to a republic, the court's distance from the political maneuverings of both the executive and legislative branches makes it the only branch capable of doing so. But lacking the sword or the purse The Supreme Court's power is limited to how far the other branches are willing to go in honoring their decisions. As Andrew Jackson allegedly once said, following John Marshall's decision to allow the Cherokee Indians to remain on their lands in Georgia, Chief Justice Marshall has made his ruling. Now let him try to enforce it. But Americans value the rule of law above all else. As President Ford once succinctly put it, we are a nation of laws, not men a phrase reinforced by the words inscribed above the entrance to the court, equal justice under law. And today, the court remains a symbol of justice, shrouded in a cloak of mystery as an equal branch of government, which was made possible when Chief Justice John Marshall asserted the court's power of judicial review in the Marbury v. Madison decision over 200 years ago.